from Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church and Touchpoint Ministries. This is the Gary Talks About God podcast. John 11. John 11. We're going to be down in verse 45 in just a minute. We're going to finish all of John uh, this morning. When I was a kid, um, I spent a lot of time at Miller Park Recreation Center. Uh, played basketball there, uh, played soccer there, I think, one year until I decided I didn't like to run. Um, did some arts and crafts, did, did all kinds of stuff. I had a lot of fun there as, as a kid. But I have this one memory, it's kind of just, it, it's just a weird memory, but I, but I have it anyway. When you're going down the hall, and I haven't been to Miller Park in years, they may have completely redone the facility since I've been there, so you, know, you may have to go back to 30-year-old architecture, I don't know. But they had a hall on the left side. The gym, as you went in, the gym was on the right. They had a hall on the left side that went to the back. As you were going down the hall, on the right side, y'all remember the buildings that had like concrete or, or cement block walls, and for no random reason, they would just put some cement blocks kind of perpendicular 90 degrees out and just build like a little alcove right there for, for, for no reason. I don't know. Miller Park had one of those. And right in that little area between the blocks, they had a recycling center. Now, uh, this was before recycling like we recycle today, right? I mean, it's become a, a thing. So you've got to go back. I said 30 years ago, 40 um, would be more appropriate. Uh, so the, the recycling center was this. It was a cardboard box with a trash bag in it. Okay, And people would recycle their drink cans in there. And what I remember about this is behind that on the wall, they had a magnet attached to a string. And I, 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 like, uh, I just like playing with this. You could take the magnet and you could stick it down where the cans were. And I guess at that time, some of the cans, I think the lids were still made of steel. And you could only recycle the aluminum. So you would drop the magnet into the bin and try to fish out the steel cans. And it's like, if you got one, it was kind of like you, you want a prize. Like, look, I got a can. You, you know, nobody cared. I, I don't know who, whose job it was to do that, but a lot of the kids, we did it for them because it was just kind, kind of fun to do that. Now, as you know, the magnet reacts with steel. The magnet does not react to aluminum. In fact, you could take that bin of cans down to the junkyard where they've got those huge magnets, right? You've seen those huge magnets that pick up cars. You could take that can, that, that aluminum, all those aluminum cans down to the junkyard, stick it right underneath that magnet, and regardless of how powerful that magnet is, none of those cans would react with the magnet. It wouldn't pull any of those aluminum cans up. In fact, it doesn't matter how powerful magnet it is. Take the most powerful magnet in the world. You're not going to get a reaction from the aluminum cans being drawn towards the magnet. When we come to John chapter 11, the ending part of John chapter 11... The people in John 11 have just witnessed the most powerful sign of Jesus yet. 
Right? We've tracked through the Gospel of John, the seven signs, and this is the last one. And, and, and this, is, this is a big one. We've seen the lame walk, we've seen the blind see, and then in John 11, we meet Lazarus who is in the tomb and dead for four days. We see Jesus walk to the tomb, face into the lair of the enemy, and look into it and say, Lazarus, come out. And in that moment, speaking into the enemy, Lazarus comes out. Jesus, just by the sound of his voice, defeats death. Now you would think, would you not, that after seeing that, that the people who were opposed to Jesus, just like uh, you know, like a steel can drawn to on a magnet, would be drawn to Jesus. But they're not. They're more like the aluminum cans. No matter how powerful the sign is, they're not drawn to Jesus. They don't want to have anything to do with him. So when we finish the gospel, finish chapter 11 in John's gospel, what we're going to see is two reactions. The religious leaders not drawn to Jesus and the people who are drawn to Jesus. And what is really ironic about the reaction is, and we're going to see it in just a moment, is the reaction comes from the same words in the same verse. Some people are going to react to Jesus and see Jesus' death as nothing but political expediency. Some are going to see and, and hear what Jesus just did and what he's talking about is going to react to Jesus' death and understand that Jesus' death is what saves us. So let's read John chapter 11, verse 45, down to verse 57. It said, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this on his own accord, but the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into, excuse me, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the county to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This morning, those, those two reactions to the death of Jesus. Right. The first one is this. They see Jesus' death as a political expediency, right? It's going to be politically expedient for Jesus to die. 
And as we come to verse 45, our attention is immediately drawn back to the Jews who traveled from Jerusalem who have come to the family. Now, interesting side note in verse 46, it appears that they came to see Mary. Not necessarily that they didn't like Martha, but Mary was perhaps, even though the younger and the lesser sister was more well-known, maybe she was more socially active and just out in the community more, but it appears that they came uh, to see Mary, which would explain why they were with Mary, why they followed her to the tomb, and why once again here they are identified with Mary. So these, the Jews who had come with Mary, who had seen what he did, said they believed in him. But let's put them aside for just a moment. We'll come back to them. But it's verse 48. But some of them, some of them, right? All of the crowd saw what Jesus did. Everybody saw Lazarus come out of the tomb. Lazarus come out. Lazarus coming out of the tomb. Jesus saying, take the cloth off of him so he can walk. They've all seen, but there is, there is this, this group of them that become a bunch of tattletales, right? I mean, that, that's what it is, right? Some of them went to the Pharisees, right? This, this is the kid in, in third grade that no matter what you did, went running to the teacher. I'm going to go tell the teacher. I'm going to go tell the teacher. I got blackmailed in fourth grade for a piece of pizza because I did something stupid, and, and I'm going to go tell the teacher. I'm going to go tell the teacher, right? You just you don't like tattletales, Right? But they're going to go, they're going to go tattle. They're going to go to the religious leaders and, and, and tell them, Jesus did this miracle. You're not going to believe what he did. Make him stop. I'm like, and you're going, surely, surely, if Jesus did something like this, my first instinct is not going to be go tattle to somebody about it. But that's exactly what is going on. Because they're not going to the Pharisees and the religious leaders to say, hey, Jesus did this amazing thing, right? Let's, let's, let's recount what Jesus has done. He, he turned water to wine. He made the blind see. He's made the lame walk. He, he made the dead man come back to life. Maybe we should repent and believe in Jesus. That's not why they're going. That's not at all why they're going. They're going to provide more motivation for the Pharisees and the religious leaders to move against Jesus. And there they're there in verse 47, and they welcome them in. We're told that the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council together. So what has happened is that the chief priest and the Pharisees, they've gone and they called the Sanhedrin. Right? That's the governing body of, of the Jews at the time. And it was made up primarily of two groups. One would be the Sadducees, and the Sadducees, they were the priestly class. So those, those were the ones ministering in the temple. The other part of the council would be um, the, the scribes and the, the Pharisees. Not, not as many Pharisees on the council. And then the chief priest, even though it's a council of 70, you can imagine. If you have 70, you can have what? A tie vote. The chief priest acted as the tie-breaking vote. He was technically 71 of the 70. And so this, this council comes together. Right? High-ranking people in society to discuss what to do with Jesus. What are we going to do with him? Now, we already see that there's a problem with the council. And the problem is this. It says that Caiaphas was chief priest of that year. Well, that's interesting. Chief priests aren't supposed to be a yearly office. Chief priest is a lifetime office. However, the, the chief priesthood became kind of a political football. It, it, it was more political than it was religious. 
and chief priests would be set up and deposed. And so you might have one for one year and one for another year. But if you were politically savvy like Caiaphas was, then when the Roman authorities set you up as chief priest, you would do all that you could to placate the Roman authorities so that you could hold on to your position of power, which he did for about 18 years. And so just by that one statement, John lets us know, these they may be the religious leaders of the day, but there's an issue with them. An issue that we've already seen, have we not? Right? The blind man looking at him is like, I don't know who he is. Do you want me? I mean, do you want to become his disciple too? You ever seen anybody do this? We've already seen that there is a problem with the religious leaders of the day. And the council have no idea what to do with this man. I mean, they say, what are we to do? And then look at the, look at the end of verse 47. Look at what they say, right? What are we to do? And then they say, he's already performed many signs. Wait a minute. I mean, do, do you see that? Their own testimony is that they have done many signs, that Jesus has done many signs. I keep coming back to this, this uh, uh, what, what would be the word? This, this contrast. Tell us plainly, are you the Christ? And then they say, he's done many signs. What do you want? What more could they possibly want? They, I mean, they're testifying, he has done many signs. But they have a problem. Right? If he keeps doing these signs, you know, everybody in the nation is going to believe in him. Well, wouldn't that be a good thing? Right? I mean, even now, wouldn't it be a good thing if everybody in America believed in Jesus? That, that would be a good starting point to correct many of the national ills. What are we going to do if, if we keep doing this? Everybody in the nation is, is going to believe Him. They're going to follow Him. And if they follow Him, they're not following us. We lose our power. But moreover, they say, we're concerned that if, if, if he starts doing this and, and, and uh, the Romans hear about this, they're going to come and they're going to take away both our place and our nation. When they say place, they, they literally are, to, they're talking about the temple. They don't want it to be destroyed. Now, there's a great irony in that. And the irony is Rome is already there. Rome has garrisons in the temple mound. Rome has put Caiaphas on the throne. Rome is already there destroying their nation. They're, they're already there. But they're saying, what are we going to do? Because if all this happens, we're going to lose. And it's all about fear. Their fear of losing their control, fear of losing their power, their influence, their prestige, their independence, which they don't really have. The fear of being thought of as not knowing the Scriptures. right? Because they're, they're supposed to know the Scriptures. This is the council. This is the religious leaders of the nation. Many who have years and years and years and years and years of religious service studying the Scriptures. That was all what the Pharisees did. All the Pharisees did was study the Scriptures. The Sadducees, I bet you they could tell you what the appropriate sacrifices were and the way to make them without, you know, wake them up in the middle of the night. Hey, tell me how you make the burnt offering. And they could tell you. Hey, tell me, how, how do we celebrate the Passover? And they could tell you. These are the most learned men in the nation. 
right? And, and you got this council and all these men, and, and not only that, they, they look good, right? I mean, they had the robes, they had the hats, they, they had the phylacteries with God's law tied to them. I mean, you know, they, they, they look good. I'll say this about the Roman Catholic Church. They look good, right? You see a cardinal, you see the college of cardinals meet together, they look good in their robes, right? And, and y'all got, you know, this, right? So here it is, everything, exterior, interior. They're supposed to know what to do. And here's the point. You can be religious and miss Jesus. I mean, everybody on this council is religious, and they're missing Jesus. And you hear it today, right? People say, well, I'm religious, or, or, or I'm, I'm spiritual. And yet they have no connection to Jesus or His church. Yeah, they might be religious, and they're lost. They might be spiritual, and they're lost. They don't see Jesus. And we get to John 11, and this is going to be the, the, the last time that Jesus is ministering publicly to the people. And we get to John 11, and we've seen time after time after time the religious leaders of the day confronted with the truth of who Jesus is and confronted and confronted and confronted, and they are not drawn to him. Like that aluminum can and a magnet. They just, they can not see and all their religiosity, all their spiritual knowledge, and they cannot see standing before them, literally in the flesh, is the second person of the Trinity, the one sent by the Father, the one sent to accomplish the will of salvation of the people, the one to be the light in, in, in the darkness and draw people to him. They cannot see him. So what are we going to do with him? Well, Caiaphas starts to talk, and Caiaphas was, was not known as a pleasant person, so he begins with a rebuke. And if I can translate it into Southern for you, in, in verse 50 when he speaks, he says, y'all don't know anything, right? That's, that's the Southern translation. You know nothing at all. Y'all don't know anything. Y'all so ignorant, you, you can't even figure out what to do. You need me to solve this problem for you. And since I'm the chief priest of the year and Rome's put me in here and I want to protect everything, I need you to listen to the solution. Here is the solution. And he says it in verse 50. It's better for you that one man should die than for the people. That's the solution. That's the solution. Now, I don't know if y'all have ever heard this quote or not. It's been falsely attributed to Stalin. It wasn't really a Stalin quote, but it was, nyet chelovekia, nyet problema, which translates as, no person, no problem. Remember, Stalin killed 20 million people, right? Now, while he actually didn't say that, you can kind of see that, well, that wasn't far off. If this person isn't around, I don't have a problem. Caiaphas says, if Jesus isn't here, we don't have a problem. And you know what's scary about that? That's not a new idea. All right? Genesis 4, Cain kills Abel, right? You can, kind of, you can read into that. It, yes, it was about sacrifices. It was about offerings. And you can kind of see Cain going, you know, if Abel's not here, he can't make that offering. And I don't have a problem. 
right? Do you see how easy it is? Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, right? But how many of you have ever thought that, you know, my problem would just disappear if you weren't here? Now, again, not to the point that you're going to go out and kill somebody, all right? I'm not saying that. But just in the moment, right, you're sitting in, in your office or you're, you're outside in public or somebody has stopped to talk to you and they're telling you this, this latest, greatest thing and, and, and everything and you just sit here going, you know, if you just weren't in my office right now, I wouldn't have a problem. If you'd just disappear, if you'd just go away, my problem would be solved. Do you see how easy it is to arrive at that, that conclusion? And here you are the chief priest, the one responsible for the nation. And so your problem is if there's one guy, so if it's either one or, or the hundreds of thousands, millions of us, if it's one or all these, then, then I'm all right with violating Jewish law and handing this one man over. We retain our power. We retain our control. Everything is fine because Jesus is gone. He's not around. See how simple and easy that is? And you may think, well, Gary, that that doesn't have anything to do with me. We've thought the same thing. We we have. Have have you ever considered that if uh, Jesus wasn't around, the problem that I'm facing really wouldn't be a problem? Right? You know, know, if, if... I didn't have to stand up and defend Jesus. I, I, I wouldn't have a problem. Right? Our, our, our faith, Jesus, gets, gets in our way sometimes, right? Because we know if, if I stand up and, and I defend Jesus, or if I start talking about him, I start talking about my faith in here, then, then it might cost me my, what, reputation, my power, my position, my advancement, fill, fill in the blank. My family, my, my security, maybe even my life. And so we'll be, we can kind of slip into this tendency of the Pharisees to go, you know, if Jesus just wasn't around, this wouldn't be a problem. And we begin to make decisions based on expediency instead of on clear biblical definitions and clear foundations, and and teachings. The Bible doesn't, as a believer, we're not called to that. What are we called to? We're called to what? Pick up our cross and follow Jesus. So when we come up and there's a decision that needs to be made, and it's are you going to stand up for Christ and for who He is and, and confess Him, whether in office, place, your life, family, however, are you going to stand up and, and, and say that and speak, speak clearly about who Christ is, even if it will damage you negatively, what are you going to do? Well, we can't go if Jesus wasn't here. This wouldn't be a problem. we got to stand up and, and speak and say, well, Jesus, you told me to follow you. You told me to pick up my cross, and I'm going to do that. I'm going to be obedient to you. And we have to do that even if it may negatively impact our lives. 
Why are the Pharisees not willing to be attracted to Jesus? Why do they not want to have anything to do with Jesus? Because it's going to negatively impact their lives. And it's going to be more expedient for them for Jesus to not be around than to confess him as Lord and Savior based on all the signs that they, through their own mouth, have seen. So that's the first reaction. But the second reaction is to understand Jesus' death as salvifically efficacious. And that simply is, is a nice way of Gary putting it. So we have parallelism in the first and second point of saying Jesus' death saves. That, that's what that means. Because that's the other reaction. Many of the Jews who had come from Jerusalem saw the same things and they what? They believed. The sign convinced them that Jesus was the Messiah. That Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And when we get to John 11 verse 50... We see exactly how this is going to happen. I said this Wednesday night. We talk about the gospel of John 3.16. Here's the gospel of John 11.50. Because it makes it clear. It says, one man should die for the people. There, there it is. That, that's the gospel. That Jesus is going to die for the people. Now here's the great irony of the book of John. Caiaphas is the one that says that. And he says that not because he is recognizing what Jesus is about to do, that when Jesus goes to the cross, his death will save the nation. All he can see is his death is going to save the nation from any political problems. Which, foreshadowing, it doesn't. A.D. 70, the Romans come in, sack Jerusalem, and destroy the temple. The nation's back, the temple is not. And John, and just... That, that irony just flowing from his pen. Caiaphas doesn't even recognize what he is saying. And what we see is that John understands that God speaks through the office, right? Because the chief priest, the chief priest belongs to God. And God here is speaking through the office, even though the high priest who is occupying the office doesn't fully grasp what he is saying. It would be better for one man to die than for the nation. And then verse 51 says, he, meaning Caiaphas, did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year. There it is. He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered aboard. Caiaphas is right, but not for the reason that he thinks. See, Jesus' death is, is going to be effective. It's going to be efficacious. And when we think about Jesus' death, and we, I, I want you to carry with you three words this morning. The first one is substitution. All right, first one is substitution. Verse 50, again, we have that word for. We don't think about it. We, we just kind of ignore it. It says, better for you that one man should die for the people. Now, in that verse, verse 50, you have two fours. The first one and the second one are two different words in, in the original. The second one is sacrificial language. For the people, in place of, instead of. Jesus is going to be the substitute. And you know what a substitute is, right? The teacher isn't there. They send you a substitute. You, you do your online shopping, and they put in a substitute, right? You wanted green, uh, green giant, you got bird's eye, right? Usually, substitutes don't matter, right? 
If I gave you some green, uh, bird's eye vegetables and uh, green giant vegetables, you're not going to be able to tell the difference. But in this case, it really does matter. It's not true. That, that substitutes don't matter is not true when it comes to Jesus because Jesus as the substitute makes the eternal difference because Jesus does not go to the cross for himself. Right? He doesn't do it for himself. He goes to the cross for us. Jesus went to the cross for you. He went to the cross for the world because we have a sin problem that we cannot deal with. Ever since the Garden of Eden and the fall in the Garden of Eden, we have not been able to do with, deal with our sin problem. But God, in His great mercy, provided a substitute. And Caiaphas says this. The fact that it's about to be a Passover is not an incidental comment on the time of the year. Because the whole point of the Passover was what? Death is coming. Go back to Exodus and read it. Death is coming. The first Passover. Death is coming. You, the firstborn of your family, of your livestock, they're going to die. Death is coming unless what? You sacrifice the lamb. And the lamb becomes what? Your substitute. The lamb's the substitute. The lamb takes away the penalty. And you are Spared. Later, when God gives the law and it's codified, and you go to Leviticus 4 through 5 and you, and, and you look at all the sacrifices, and in that, those chapters, it talks about the sin offering and it gives in great detail how to sacrifice the bull, how to sacrifice the goat, how to sacrifice the lamb, whether it's for the priest or a normal person or accidental or, or on purpose. There's a, a, a tremendous list of regulations that have to be followed in following each. Instruction, it ends with this. And the priest shall make an atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. It's repeated over and over and over again. The animal that died was the substitute that provided the atonement for the person. The problem is, they had to keep bringing substitutes. You brought a substitute one day, and then you brought a substitute the next day, and you brought the substitute the next day, and the substitute the next day, and the next day. There's a never-ending cycle of substitutes. While God gave the law, and the law has a purpose, the law's ultimate fulfillment and the final substitute doesn't come until Jesus. It's only when Jesus is the substitute on the cross does the sacrificial system end. We don't need another substitute. We have our substitute. Because Jesus died for us. But not only substitute, I want you to note the word satisfaction. Satisfaction. Romans 5.9 says this, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Now, you're going to have to stick with me on this point because we're getting ready to take a bunch of puzzle pieces. All right, and we're going to put them together. We go to Romans 5, 9, and we read that, and drawn to the word wrath, the wrath of God. Now, a few Wednesdays from now, studying the God that we worship, or knowing the God that we worship, we're going to study God's wrath, His righteous, just, and holy wrath. We'll go in greater detail there. But here, we're told that the blood that Jesus shed 
saves us from God's wrath. I know we don't like to talk about God's wrath, right? It's scary. It's frightening. And you know what? It should be. For sinners like us, God's wrath should be frightening. God's holy, righteous wrath should scare us. Absolutely. Because we need to understand that there is no way in and of ourselves to satisfy God's wrath. And if we came before God's righteousness and holiness in all of our sin, His righteous, holy wrath would consume us. We read in Romans 5, 9, that God's wrath was satisfied. How was it satisfied? It was satisfied with the blood of Jesus. Now, we, we need to understand something. Because satisfaction can, can sound like, well, if we just entertain God a little bit, if we just do this, it'll make Him happy and God will go away, right? Right? This is, that idea of satisfaction is the four-year-old kid going, can I have some ice cream? 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 If I, can just, if I just satisfy his desire for ice cream, he'll have ice cream, he'll go away, right? It's not what we're talking about. That, that, that's that's, that's the, 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 the wrong idea. God's satisfaction, again, goes all the way back to the Old Testament, to the sacrificial system. You, you can turn there in your Bibles, or you can jot down Scripture references. Leviticus 16. Okay? Leviticus 16, and if you look in the non-inspired chapter headings that tell you what is in Leviticus 16, remember chapter headings were added later. We're talking about the Day of Atonement. And if you drop down to verse 7, it says, Then he, talking about Aaron, shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for Yahweh and the other lot for Azel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for Yahweh and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent into the wilderness of Azel. So here we go. It's, 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 it's the day of atonement, and we have two goats. And you need to know two words for these two goats, all right? One is expiation, and the word is propitiation, all right? Propitiation is in Scripture. We read that expiation is not. The difference that you can hear in the words begins with the prefix, ex and pro. Ex simply means out of, okay? It means out of, to to take away. So you have these two goats, and Aaron goes to the one goat and lays his hand on the goat, All the sins in that moment of the goat are placed on the goat, and the goat is sent into the wilderness. That is expiation. The sins are being taken away. The word pro means for. Again, sacrificial language, right? It means for. So propitiation is the goat where it says he is taken and he is sacrificed to satisfy the righteous demands of God. Drop down to verse 15, verse 15 says, Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front 
of the mercy seat. You read on down and it says that he is doing this and it says because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. So the propitiatory goat, not the one that's wandering in the wilderness, but the propitiatory goat is taken to the temple and it is sacrificed. And when it is sacrificed, Aaron is told very specifically to take the blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Okay, keep a finger in Leviticus 16. Go backwards to Exodus 25. I told you there were several puzzle pieces. Exodus 25, you get to that, and again, you look at the, what it tells you the chapter is about. It's about the Ark of the Covenant. And you begin in verse 10. It says, they shall make an ark of acacia wood. And it gives you the dimensions of the ark. The ark is, is just a chest. Okay? It's a chest. Drop down to verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make the two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other end. One piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. All right. Every chest needs a lid, right? So here we have the lid, and it's given in great detail. And basically, it's a lid with, with two cherubim. Cherubim are angels. One on the right side of the lid, one on the left. So the one on the right would be sitting and have his wings facing toward the middle. And then on the other side, you'd have another cherubim sitting on the other side with its wings facing toward the middle. And this is called the mercy seat. Okay? Listen to verse 22. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in a commandment for the people of Israel. So the mercy seat is given in great detail. And the reason it's given in great detail and the reason it's called that is because on the mercy seat is where God is going to meet with his people. When they talk about God's glory shining down into the tent of meeting so that they know that God was visibly present with them, God's presence was resting on that mercy seat. You couldn't touch it. You couldn't touch the ark. You couldn't touch the mercy seat because that's where God's presence was. Go back to Leviticus 16, down in verse 15. You shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it where? Over the mercy seat where God meets with his people. In Leviticus 16, 15, the propitiatory goat, the one that was slain, his blood was sprinkled in God's presence. And when that blood was sprinkled in God's presence, the offering is made and God is satisfied. 
He is satisfied that the sins of his people have been atoned for. But here's the problem. There simply aren't enough goats. There's not. There's not enough goats to go into the wilderness to take the sins away. There's not enough goats to go to the altar. There's not enough goats that can take away our sins. We need something better. We need something else that will work. And so what happens? God sends his son, the second person of the Trinity, to come and do that. Because our our sins can't really just be taken away. Right? They can't just be taken away into some cosmic void. Our sins must be accounted for. That's why there's two goats. Our sins have to be accounted for, but the goats are insufficient. There's got to be a better way. So when you go back to Romans, and you read in Romans 3, and you read, you know Romans 3.23, for all have sinned right, and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is Christ Jesus. Look at verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received in faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, what? He passed over the former sins. Do you see how it all comes together? Do you see how what God was doing in the Passover and God was doing through the sacrificial system was not so that they would be atoned for, right? Because it says right here, they, they, they had passed over because divine forbearance, he passed over, passed over. There it is, Passover. Passed over their sins until when? Until Jesus came. And Jesus, right, who is fully God. Again, think about this. There's a sin problem. We can't solve it. So God comes in and, and, and God solves it. Right? God's righteousness demands a price to be paid for sin, and God's love says, I'm going to provide the payment. So Jesus steps down out of heaven, and he becomes the propitiation. Not the one that goes out into the wilderness just carrying away our sins, where our sins aren't atoned for, but the propitiatory sacrificial goat that is slain to take away our sins. So when we come back to verse 9 of chapter 5, God's wrath has been satisfied. And it's only through Jesus that that can happen. No one else can do it. Jesus, as perfect human, was the perfect sacrifice. Jesus, as fully God, could endure the price and defeat death. So Jesus becomes our satisfaction so that we can be saved. Never forget that God demanded the price and God paid the price. But then lastly, security. Security. Verse 52, we're told that he's going to die, not just for the nation, but he's going to gather into all the children who are scattered abroad. He dies for all of it. That's us. That's us. It's not just talking about the Jews spread out from the dysphoria, but it's talking about us. Me and you, the Gentiles. It includes anyone regardless of ethnic identity who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Did y'all get to that verse in, in Sunday school this morning, Debbie? Neither Jew nor Greek nor... Yes, 
right? There's the Sunday school work in. You didn't think I'd do it, ha. Right? That Jesus' death is, is, is for everyone. It's for everyone. We've already seen this where Jesus says that there are other sheep not of his field. There are other sheep not in the nation of Israel. And he has come to collect his sheep. What? So there's one children of God. And the result of this is one flock, one shepherd. And Jesus' death secures the redemption of his flock. Right? Y'all, y'all, y'all know what a battery is. Right? In that battery... Right? This, this is important. In that battery is what is called potential energy. It means it has the energy potentially to do something. You take a battery and sit it on the counter, the battery does nothing. You put it in a flashlight and the battery turns the flashlight on. Y'all, y'all, y'all understand this. You take the battery out of the flashlight, sit it back on the counter, the flashlight doesn't do anything, the battery doesn't do nothing. Nothing does nothing. But it still has potential energy. And the reason I bring that up, because I want you to hear, when you talk about security and Jesus securing the redemption of us, it is not that the cross has potential to save, but the cross saves. There's not potential in it. It is fully paid for. The death of Jesus on the cross atoned for sins once and for all so that all who call on the name of Jesus will be saved. Every single person. And when you call on Jesus to be saved, you prove that you are his sheep and he is your shepherd. So when we come to John 11 and we ask, what exactly did the the death of Jesus accomplish? Did it just accomplish political expediency? Absolutely not. Everything that they were afraid of actually ends up happening. What we need to understand by the mouth of the high priest that year is that Jesus is going to die for the world. He's going to die for the nation, for his people scattered abroad to call his people home. What Jesus' death accomplished is what we cannot. His death and resurrection accomplishes our salvation But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and cows, but the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For at the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus Christ, when he came, he entered into the holy of holy places and he sprinkled his blood on the mercy seat. And in doing so, he became our substitute. He became our satisfaction and he made the security of salvation real. That's what the death of Jesus accomplishes. The Gary Talks About God podcast is a production of Touchpoint Ministries and Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. Want to learn more? Visit our website at www.redbankmbc.com. If you enjoyed this content, please like and subscribe. 
thank you for joining us.